Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Talking about the VW ID4. Pretty cool looking vehicle, I have to say. Um, <laughs> and I'll be psyched to get into that teardown for sure. But I want to focus now not on cars, um, but I was going to say on hair, but really I want to focus on growth in business because we're going to bring in Amy Errett right now. She is the founder and CEO of Madison Reed out of San Francisco, and she has started a killer at hair home color business. Um, now, I don't have any hair, Amy, and Paul's <laughs> hair is a beautiful shade of wisdom white uh, that he would never want to mess with. But um, it is incredibly impressive, the business you started and the, and the growth that you've seen. Talk us through what 2020 was like for you. Yeah, so thanks very much for, for having me. And uh, we're, we're all good that you don't have any hair. That's okay. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, we, uh, you know, the business is uh, about six and a half years old. We were uh, growing really well. Uh, and then uh, the pandemic hit and uh, the, our business grew 127% last year. So why and, is that just um, because people, Amy, is that just because people couldn't go to the salon? Um, or do you think they were coloring yeah. their hair even more just because the time they had at home? I think it's both. I think they couldn't go to the salon. So we saw an influx of what were at that time salon goers who have now many of them been converted to our business and seen that the results uh, and the cost savings are fantastic. And we have a great ingredient story, an eight-free ingredient story. So what we think is a very high-quality product. And I think there are a number of people that were looking on Zoom all day and uh, realizing that they wanted to color their hair because it is emotional and it makes you feel good about yourself when your hair looks great. So I think there was another people that were coloring at home already, but increased their frequency. Yeah, Amy, that's kind of what I wanted to get at. I'm not sure if you've done any survey work with your customers, but you know, a lot of things in terms of what we do day to day got disrupted during the pandemic. Um, but a lot of folks say, well, I'm just going to go back to kind of my old ways once we get to the other side of this. How's that? How do you think your customer base is going to kind of evolve post pandemic in terms of their behavior? Yeah, so uh, we've been watching that very closely. We've obviously been spending a lot of time on what we call retention and loyalty and making sure that our customers are very happy. We have not seen that drop off. And in fact, we've seen continued growth every month. Um, one other nuance of our business that um, may not be clear is we have 31 nationwide what we call hair color bars, which are a faster, less expensive uh, take on getting your hair colored in the salon. Um, and so we have, we had those pre pandemic, only 12, we've opened, uh, over 19 during the pandemic, which is a whole separate story. Uh, but we also have seen a major influx as some people are getting vaccinated of actually people coming into our hair color bars because they love the product and they want us to apply it for, uh, it's, it, the SLA of that is about 75 minutes, which is, uh, radically different than going to a salon and a lot less expensive and the authenticity and transparency of the product. So sometimes you may want to do it at home. Sometimes you may want to come into a hair color bar. So we really haven't seen the 
part that's going away from our business at all. I also think it's quite cool that you have developed the Color Crew, which is uh, a, a team of licensed colorists. They help um, customers online. Um, when I was a kid, Amy, I used to dye my hair purple or, or blue or green with manic Why panic. That surprise me. That I yep. would go, I was really into, you know, um, punk rock and I'd go to Ricky's in New York and it was, I don't know, 10 bucks or even cheaper. Yep. Uh, but I, but your hair uh, product has been dubbed the Birkin bag of home hair color. <laughs> why, why is that? Is it just a higher level of quality than say L'Oreal or, or, or Clairol or whatever else is out there? So our product, um, uh, I love that description, the Birkin bag of hair color. Um, our product is salon quality. And so historically, there has been a difference between the color that you buy on the shelf of Ricky's or Walgreens or Dwayne Reed and the color that is applied in a professional salon. Those are very different qualities, um, whether it's color molecules, uh, efficacy of the product that our taste, ingredients that we take out and uh, some good things we put in that are reparative. And so there has never been before us a salon quality, professional grade, maybe that's the best way of saying it, hair color product that is direct to a consumer. And so what is what is part of the disruption is giving the consumers the same product that we apply in our hair color bars, which is the efficacy of a professional product where in nothing again against whatever mm. you used, that was set up for <laughs> at-home use with Manic a lot panic. less. Yeah. Okay. So um, I just, you know, before we wrap up and we only have 30 seconds, Amy, but I got to ask, uh, IPO or SPAC, what's your exit look like? Uh, oh, well, I, you know, you'll have to stay tuned and have me back to know the answer to that. (laughs) But, um, uh, let me put it this way. I, the, uh, the SPAC market is if I get another inbound, uh, I I'm spending most of my time spending inbound. Um, but, um, you know, I don't know. We're, uh, we're well poised to be, you know, a public company. We'll see which way that direction goes. And we're excited about the opportunity. Hey, Amy, thank you so much for joining us. A fascinating story. Wish you continued good luck. Amy Eret, founder and CEO of Madison Reed. They just completed a $52 million Series F funding round and have raised close to $200 million since launch in the private market. And as Matt suggested, maybe the next uh, move will be a SPAC or an IPO. Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from Massachusetts, says her ultra-millionaire tax um, would raise $3 trillion over the next 10 years and help fund infrastructure, child care, and education. She spoke with Bloomberg's Kevin Cirilli on Capitol Hill. More and more people are starting to look at the wealth tax and say, wait a minute, this makes a lot of sense. You know, people across this nation get it. Independents, Republicans, Democrats... A majority of all of them want to see us do a wealth tax because they know that the system is rigged against them. With that in mind and a little bit of disclosure, I keep hundreds of dollars in my checking account at Huntington Private Bank. Dan Griffith joins us right now, (laughs) Director of Wealth Strategy out of the great state of Ohio. Dan, um, what do you think about the idea of wealth tax? I mean, it wouldn't hit me too hard, so I'm not terribly bothered, but um, I guess a lot of your other clients would lose some cash. Oh, well, good morning. Thank you for having me. I uh, agree with you. It sounds like our balances are somewhat similar. Uh, glad to have you <laughs> as a client for sure. But I think that's the biggest concern that a number of our clients have raised initially is 
Um, although it may appear that this will affect not that many folks, the concern that our clients are raising is what is that valuation number going to look like? You know, what what is my business really worth? We know that here in 2021, there's going to be huge numbers of mergers and acquisition activities. Uh, and as a consequence of that, what are the valuations for businesses going to look like? So we know that uh, we can probably tell what balance sheets look like when it's stocks and bonds, but when they're illiquid assets, this could be a real problem for a lot of clients that exist out there. And Dan, are, are some of your clients, are they concerned that maybe this is just the, you know, the first step uh, towards just a higher tax regime overall, which if in effect at some point will come down and impact uh, many more U.S. citizens? A lot of clients are obviously concerned about many elements of tax pieces. Uh, I had somebody just this week who mentioned that the original AMT was put in place to only affect about 150 people. And obviously now that's grown to affect a lot more folks. A lot of our clients are concerned about the, the same things that Senator Warren articulated, income inequality. Um, but I think a lot of them are just concerned about making sure that we can address this in a way that's uh, most effective for making communities stronger and keeping businesses strong as well. When I think about, when I hear about audits, I kind of get the heebie-jeebies. I mean, it literally sends shivers up my <laughs> spine to think about that. Um, and I guess you would have to oversee a lot of them for your clients. How much would it cost to make sure the wealth tax is properly um, enforced? You know, that's a great question. And one of the other big concerns that our clients have raised, uh, the cost of enforcement and more, the, more, I would say, the cost of compliance is going to be a big one. Uh, we mentioned the fact that a lot of illiquid assets are going to need to be uh, put through valuation processes. And obviously, if you're going to be doing that every year, then you've got the IRS that's going to come back and say, well, we think these assets are worth this. You know, the family farm is worth this much. And the, the taxpayer is going to say maybe they have a different position on valuation. And they're going to have to potentially do that every single year. So clients are expressing a lot of concern about this. This, this will definitely potentially add to the number of people who work for the IRS, but it's going to be a big, uh, a big employment number for people who are in tax and valuation enforcement, too. A lot of lawyers and accountants will be put into work if this proposal is adopted. Hey, Dan, you know, on a just kind of a stepping back uh, more broadly, what are you telling your clients these days? We've got equity markets uh, at or near all time highs, it seems like on a daily basis. We have interest rates uh, edging up here. What's kind of been some of the more recent discussions you've had with your clients um, at Hunting Private Bank? Well, overall, I think our chief investment office is really still very optimistic about the markets overall. You know, earnings reports continue to be very positive, and there are a lot of indications that things uh, are still going to look up and there's more opportunity there. The benefit of what we do in the Wealth Strategy Group is we get to work with uh, business owners directly. So part of the fun and excitement of that job is that we get to talk to the business owners and see what, what they're thinking. Uh, and I have to tell you that the conversations that I have with our clients uh, are equally optimistic at a kind of micro level as well. So I think in a lot of ways, we think there's a lot of reason to be uh, optimistic about the future. I guess uh, your your clients, though, if, if this thing starts to gain steam, they're going to look to take as much income as they can now to get out ahead of it. I think liquidity is probably the biggest concern. That's exactly right. When, when it comes to clients relative to not just this wealth tax, but any volatility in, in uh, tax policy that happens, you know, anything that happens with, uh, with a business when it comes to liquidity is an important piece. If you've got $50 million and you're paying an annual wealth tax of 2%, that's a million dollars that you've got on the on the sidelines that our clients would be concerned is a million dollars that they're not able to use to pay 
employees or invest in research and development or even in their business growth or community activities that many of our our clients are very much committed to. And so I think liquidity is a big concern, um, not just for this, but for a lot of our clients uh, as we move towards what could be some changes in tax policy. Hey, Dan, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Uh, We appreciate your thoughts there. Dan Griffith, Senior Vice President and Director of Wealth Strategy at Huntington Private Bank, based in North Canton, Ohio, just below. Go Buckeyes. Yeah, just below. Uh, you know, it's a uh, it's interesting in the Ohio State University, which I'm not sure why we have to accent the North Canton's pretty far away from the Ohio State University, but yeah. I bet you Dan is a Buckeyes fan anyway. <laughs> it's hard not to be. They're pretty solid there, so it's always good to hear uh, Dan's thoughts here about this. You know, wealth tax that is winding its way through Congress. We'll see if there's any bipartisan support for this at all. I think most people know that my dog and best friend, Stephen, is a Rottweiler. He is not a German Shepherd. Greg Jarrett, thank you very much for that business flash. Now I want to talk a little bit about munis with our um, Amanda Albright, our Bloomberg Muni Bond reporter. Um, One of the reasons, Amanda, that we bring you in is because it looks like um, the state rescue funds from uh, Joe Biden's proposal kind of dwarf the tax hit and then turn into more of a stimulus than a drag? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's It's been um, super interesting just the way that um, kind of our thinking around um, state and local aid um, throughout the pandemic has changed over time. Um, but so my colleagues and I, we tallied the um, expected tax revenue hit for fiscal 2021. Um, and we found that it's about $31 billion, um, which is still a very material number, but um, it's obviously less than the um, nearly $200 billion that states would receive under the Biden um, proposal. So does that put that $200 billion at risk if I'm a a congressman concerned about, you know, the soaring debt here, I might say, hey, the states actually did better than we initially thought. They don't need $200 billion. Yes. And I think that's exactly where the conversation is, is heading um, in Congress. It's absolutely, it's it's very nuanced. Um, and states, there's, there's a lot more than just revenues um, that states are dealing with. They're dealing with pandemic-related costs. They're dealing with um, trying to meet unemployment claims. So the picture for state finance is is very complicated, but we have seen um, forecasters who kind of look at the situation for states holistically. We've even seen forecasters who look beyond just revenues and also look at costs. They've also um, come down in their forecasts of how much of a fiscal impact COVID is going to be on states. And so um, it definitely, all, all signs point that that $200 billion is, um, is, is generous, um, but it, it won't be um, necessarily, um, states will still find ways to use that money. And we point out in the story that that could go to kind of economic stimulus projects, which would kind of give um, President Biden a head start on his kind of How- ultimate goal of reviving the economy. When you get back to your markets uh, dashboard, is this all priced into the muni market? So the way the muni market is pricing things is very interesting. There's been a sell-off lately because of treasuries. Um, but I would say that a lot of investors have been factoring in stimulus aid to credits like Illinois and New York MTA. Um, so at this point, um, if state, states and locals, if that money was taken away from them, I don't know what the reaction would be because I also think um, the way that the pandemic um, has played out for municipal finance, it really kind of underscores how resilient some of these issuers are. Um, so I, 
I'm still very curious to see if this will actually have any bond market impact if that aid is taken away, but that's obviously not what I'm um, necessarily expecting. But I do think um, the clearly the amount of aid, the $350 billion top line number, clearly that's being talked about and, um, you know, could be altered in, in uh, the Senate. So it, it, let's, under a scenario where the $200 billion does get through, uh, Amanda, you know, some of the states, I mean, is the expectation that they will spend it on bridges and tunnels and roads and that kind of thing? Yeah, that's kind of what I'm most interested in watching going forward, what that money is used for. I'm sure that some of the states will maybe try Digital. to do infrastructure projects, yeah. um, broadband projects, if depending on what the guidelines are from the federal government. Um, but there's also, and some kind of, you know, economic experts have raised, you know, a p- potential issues um, in their eyes if some states are saying, hey, we just got all this money from the federal government, let's just cut taxes or... Um, you know, will this cause if, if states see this windfall of money, are they going to behave responsibly with that money? Um, we saw this play out a little bit with the CARES Act money that they got. Um, we covered some of the um, political bickering that happened last year with some of the CARES Act funds, um, because obviously with 50 states, um, 50 legislatures, governors, like there's a lot of variance in how states will kind of seek to use that money. And I think that's also caught the attention of economists who are starting to maybe question a little bit, is this money going to be used responsibly? And it's a, it's a big question mark. And I think that's kind of where the debate stands right now. So it's very, very interesting. I was kind of wondering um, if you are at either at Duke or UNC, do you hang out in Chapel Hill or do you, you don't go to Durham, right? Does everybody hang out in Chapel Hill? So it's funny because when you're, um, when you're an undergrad, all the Duke kids, go to Chapel Hill to hang out. But now that um, my friends and I are older, we, we really like Durham. So it can't. All right, I'll give you the, I'll give you so the real scoop. Amanda's, Amanda's right. When I was a student at Duke... Amanda's you, Tar Heel you, and Paul is a blue devil. Yeah, you basically got through the Duke social scene in about 15 minutes and then you went to, to, to Carolina. But things have changed. Durham has become a very hot, trendy, chic market. Think, you know, a smaller version of Austin, Texas, if you will. Um, Lots of new restaurants and bars and hotels and things like that. That I'm seeing a lot more Chapel Hill paraphernalia walking around Durham on a Friday night than we ever did before. So things are changing. So it's a hot area of the country which is good for everybody down there. And I, I have, think what we're uh, seeing is a lot of folks live in New York. That That's one of the markets people are going to. I have written a Absolutely. Ducati Monster S4RS through both towns, and <laughs> I, I thought it was pretty awesome. I, I, the reason I'm kind of wondering about this is all my college friends, Amanda, a couple months ago started asking me a ton of questions again about stocks. And I joke about the retail popularity of munis, but is there any play across from the Reddit crowd, from the Robinhood crowd into your universe? Um, I would be um, as a reporter no. who's always <laughs> looking for interesting things. I would be very excited about that, but I haven't heard about that happening. But um, there's lots of like interesting credits in Muni's that I think would probably appeal to the millennial Gen Z um, investor base. But Muni's are more expensive to buy in, so it. Um, but I would be very curious if that happened. Um, that would be very exciting as a reporter. So. All right, Amanda, thanks so much for joining us. Unfortunately, I don't think UNC or Duke is going to the NCAA tournament this year, so we're going to have some extra free time on our hands. Uh, Amanda Albright, Bloomberg Municipal Bond reporter, uh, we appreciate that. And um, hey, the muni market, 
it's been so hot, Matt. I mean, funds flowing into the muni market. Um, we hear from Joe Mysick uh, every Friday, and it's one of the issues we always talk about. And the funds going in there are great, particularly in a taxable municipal market, which was a market I never even knew existed uh, up until you know a year or two ago. But uh, Joe and Eric Kazatsky, Bloomberg Intelligence, who also covers municipals, they talk about that taxable municipal bond market being super hot, lots of demand. When I was a kid, you had to pay for stuff like music and movies and magazines. But um, for a while there, over the last couple of decades, that stuff all became free. Alex Webb says you're going to have to get ready to pay for it again because of Google and Facebook. The Bloomberg Opinion columnist joins us now. So, Alex, um, what are, are we going to have to start forking out cash now to read news? By journalists? <laughs> I know, shock, shock horror. Um, particularly, uh, hopefully, by the likes of you and me. Um, no, I, I think the, the key thing here is there are really three phases to this. In the original sort of model, you know, pre-internet, I say original, but certainly the model pre-internet, most of the content that we consume was at the very least subsidized by ads. So actually, if you look at the New York Times in circa 2006, when its ads revenue peaked, um, it would make $500 a year from a print subscriber paying for the physical copy of the newspaper, but it would make another $1,000 a year per subscription from advertising. So ads subsidized all of our media consumption, same applies for television, for radio, and plenty more besides. What's happened with the internet, first wave of the internet, all that stuff went online for free with the hope that they'd be able to sell ads on top of it. Never really worked out that way. And all of the ad revenue has now been sucked up, I say all of it, but literally three quarters of the $300 billion that was spent on online ads last year went to Google and Facebook. And that means that the companies, the organizations that previously were the beneficiaries of advertising income have got to find other ways to pay for themselves. And frankly, the, the easiest way of doing that is with um, paywalls. And Alex, yes, it relates to the news business. The number of examples of successful paywalls is few and far between, you know, the New York Times, okay, Wall Street Journal, okay, maybe the FT as well, but there's not a whole lot. What does that mean to the future of of news, do you think, in an online world? So I I think first things first, this isn't just about news. You know, we've seen it, we're now seeing it everywhere. And the reason I wrote this column now is because Twitter is introducing a paid tier. And um, I think one of the reasons that there have been that that not all paywalls have been successful is because not everyone has a paywall. So in order for the paywall model to work, you kind of need everyone to be doing it. Um, If there is uh, sort of a chink in that armor whereby, um, you know, substantial publications elsewhere are free, um, web users are going to say, well, why should I pay for, you know, company X when I'll get company Y gratis? And um, Mm. I think now that we've reached this consensus that content is something that should be paid for because it no longer able to be ad-supported, ad mentalities are starting to change and people are getting more comfortable with the idea that actually you have to pay for your video streaming, video-on-demand streaming service, your music streaming, your um, news, magazines, whatever it might historically have been. I got to say, as somebody who, you know, I grew up probably shelling out one or two or 300 bucks a month for records and tapes, um, <laughs> and, and then CDs, obviously, later in life, but... Now I, I'm so stunned. Every time I look at my Apple Music, I pay $11 a month for all 
of the <laughs> records, tapes, and CDs, which is pretty awesome. Um, on the other hand, Alex, journalism has been hit hard by free news. Um, you've witnessed, I'm sure, swathes of layoffs. Um, the New York Times is a shadow of its former self. and But growing again, though. Yeah, well, maybe this is a good thing. Maybe if people get used to the fact that they got to pay for news or just be sort of dumbed down by the Facebooking of the world, they'll choose the former. You certainly are seeing the trend that there are some companies who have said, well, actually, we're going to introduce a paywall simply because um, we don't necessarily need one. But there's a quality perception that if I'm paying for publication X, by implication, publication Y if it's free, it must be worse. And so there's an element of, of pride amidst all of this. I think the New York Times, frankly, now is reaching a level that is comparable to where it was 15 years ago. Uh, it now has 6 million digital subscribers. It, it had at its peak, it was selling a, a million copies of the print newspaper a day. Wow. That might have had three or four readers, uh, readers um, for each copy. So it's a slightly different calculation. But I think that the key consideration now is that this is extending beyond just your classic media as i said before it's, it's about the way that actually it, it used to be that much of the web was funded by advertising if it wasn't literally an e-commerce website or something where you were paying for a product to be delivered to you um stuff tended to be free because it was funded by ads as more and more of those ads go to google and facebook it means that there's more than just media organizations that are having to charge and, and that is a big change and i think one that people are slowly having to adapt to you know, a related story that just came out this morning, courtesy of Dow Jones reporting that Google announcing that it will stop selling ads based upon your specific web browsing. Well, and Bloomberg and, has the story as well, I should say. Uh, pardon? Bloomberg has the story Bloomberg too. Story oh, good. This as well, yeah. Good, excellent. So, I mean, that, that sounds big to me, um, Alex. What do, what do you make of that? Because it seems like what one of the things that these digital players pitch to advertisers is, hey, we know where your audience is. We can track them. What do you, what do you make of this news? So it's, it's positive, but there are heavy caveats here. The way that people used to track or that Google and any other ad tech company used to target ads was to do with third-party cookies. Little um, gobbits of information that uh, websites would drop onto your computer so they could see what you'd visited, what your browsing activity was. Now, for, for companies like Google, they actually sell most of their ads on their own Websites. So if you type a search into Google for brown T-shirts, the results that it provides you, there will be ads at the top of that. That's one piece. Then there's also YouTube where it you know, serves ads based on what you're looking at on a Google-owned website. That is the majority of Google's advertising income. So when it says it's not going to track you across other websites, yes, that might be true. But frankly, that isn't a terribly lucrative business for Google. It makes money by essentially tracking what you're doing on its own website. And that is not going to stop. Mm. What we're going to see is the stopping of tracking on third-party websites. Thank goodness. Because as a consumer, I love those targeted ads. You know, I don't have to look all over the internet for my next Grateful Dead trucker's cap because <laughs> Google knows I want it. And it's already got like four ads displayed along the side of my search results. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, I think that you are actually in the minority there, Matt, because like it's, yes. it's Google and Facebook, and particularly Facebook will say this, people want to see targeted ads rather than see 
seen not targeted ads. But actually, people didn't get angry when they were watching television and in the ad break they would see ads that weren't pertinent to them. You know, it is, this is a sort of fallacy that people prefer to see targeted ads. It's like if they know they're being tracked. What, except for me, I guess, you're it, saying. Yeah. But yeah, I think you're the exception. Like if, I think if they, people know they're being tracked, and then they see an ad that isn't pertinent to them, they get angry because they sort of go, well, what does Google think I am? <laughs> In the world where ads are not being targeted, people didn't get creeped out or angry at ads that weren't relevant to them. It's true. Ever since I, ha- I had a daughter in October and I've started getting like little princess ads now. <laughs> exactly. And they, they know where you live now. Alex Webb, Bloomberg Opinion Technology and Media uh, column, we, uh, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. We appreciate that. Again, a lot of changes in the digital advertising space. And what we saw during the pandemic, Matt, was just an acceleration of the ad dollars away from traditional media uh, to these online platforms like Facebook. Like we'll, we'll have more on that coming up. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.